left hepatic duct and one right hepatic duct. And they both connect into a common hepatic duct. Let's make this bigger. Here we see the left hepatic duct that comes from the left lobe of the liver. It joins the right hepatic duct that comes from the right lobe of the liver. And they together will give place to the common hepatic duct. Thus the bile is produced in the liver and comes down through these two ducts and get together in the common hepatic duct. Now the common hepatic duct continues all the way and at some point it will join with another duct here which is called the cystic duct. The cystic duct connects to the gallbladder. So, and the duct continues its way. Beyond that point where the cystic duct joins the common hepatic duct, that duct keeps coming down, goes behind the duodenum, behind the pancreas, and it will drain into the duodenum. And it's called the common bile duct, or CBD. Now, notice one thing. At the duodenum, this common bile duct will drain, but before draining, it will join the pancreatic duct, which I'm drawing now here, pancreatic duct, coming from the pancreas. And both together will drain to the place called hepatopancreatic ampulla or ampulla of Vater. That's all the biliary duct uh, system and how they drain the bile. <coughs> we see the same thing here. Left hepatic duct, right hepatic duct, they get together into the common hepatic duct, which joins the cystic duct, and together they give place to the common bile duct. And the common bile duct comes down, joins the pancreatic duct, and both drain to the second portion of the duodenum in the ampulla of Vater. The bile gets there. The bile is secreted into the duodenum. And in the duodenum, we will find the food that is coming from the stomach. Food that has been digested in proteins, still some fats, and here the duodenum is where the digestion will continue. Carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, all the three components. Now the gallbladder is connected to the cystic duct and actually the gallbladder is going to work as a reservoir, storage of bile. That's what the bile stores. The bile is not produced in the gallbladder, it's produced in the liver. It is stored in the gallbladder. Why is it stored? Because if for some reason we eat an extra amount of fats, the bile that is coming from the liver would not be enough and we need more bile. And so the gallbladder will have that extra bile that we need, and it will contract and send more bile to the duodenum.
And that's a detail of the common bile duct drain into the duodenum. Before draining into the duodenum, joins the pancreatic duct at the level of the hepatopancreatic ampulla or ampulla of Vader. And as I said, that's the second part of the duodenum. Now, from inside the duodenum, we see the opening, and that part is called the duodenal papilla. We see the opening surrounded by a ring of tissue, the mucosa, and that is called the duodenal papilla. In green, you have the common bile duct, and in purple, the pancreatic duct. You see, both get together and drain together into the, uh, towards the duodenum. It does the same thing, but in a diagram. Right hepatic duct, left hepatic duct, together into the common hepatic duct, joining the cystic duct, and we have the common bile duct that joins the pancreatic duct and drain finally to the water. What happens? Between meals, the hepatopancreatic ampulla is closed. There is a sphincter at that place. Right here, this part, this opening is closed. That opening is closed between meals. No bile, no pancreatic juice drain into the water. And the liver continues producing bile. The liver will not stop, stop producing bile. And so if that sphincter is closed, the bile will go and back up. Back up and will enter the cystic duct and it will be collected in the gallbladder. That's the purpose of the gallbladder, to store additional bile. And in that place, in the gallbladder, the bile will be concentrated, will lose water, and you get very concentrated, there's absorption of water and absorption of electrolytes. So the gallbladder stores the bile. And when we eat a meal containing fat, that fat reaches the duodenum, and there are cells in the duodenum that will produce a substance called CCK or cholecystokinin. This CCK will go to the circulation, to the blood, and will reach the gallbladder cells, the walls of the gallbladder, and the gallbladder will contract. Will contract and send more bile to the duodenum. That's a regulation of the secretion of bile. Can we live without gallbladder? Yes. Yes. There are many people that have their gallbladder removed because of gallstones, and they function very well. But probably they have to adjust some things in their diets, like eating less fat. And, but along the time, what happens is that the sphincter will regulate how much bile gets into the duodenum. And the bile comes straight from the liver. There's no more gallbladder. It's just the common hepatic duct, common bile duct, and drains to the duodenum. So the sphincter opens during your meals and then closes in between meals. And usually that's enough amount of bile that you need for a meal 
but it's not excessive, uh, uh, does not contain an excess of fat. This is how the bile works. The bile salts, when they mix with a big drop of fat, the bile salts will emulsify the fat, meaning they will break down this big drop of fat into a small droplets of fat. And that will be very helpful so the lipase from the pancreas will digest the fats. And that way the bile helps to digest the fats. In the top we see oil and water, they don't mix, but after emulsification you can mix both. And actually there is no mixture, what happens is that drops of fat are so small that it seems there is only one solution. That's how the bile works. Making it easy for the lipase to digest the fats. That was about the gallbladder and the bile. Gallstones is a problem of the gallbladder. There are risk factors for developing gallstones. Uh, we can mention one of them is high cholesterol in the diet. If you have high cholesterol for a long time, you have increased risk of developing gallstones. There, uh, it's more frequent. You have gallstones for women than men. It's an statistical information. More children the woman has, more risk for gallstones. And other diseases like diabetes can also increase the risk for, for developing gallstones. The solution is to remove the gallstones. And to remove the gallstones, usually they have to remove the whole gallbladder to prevent that more gallstones be formed in the future. Next part of the digestive tube, small intestine. Small intestine is divided in three segments. The first segment, the duodenum, which measures about 10 inches, the jejunum, and the ileum. All these three segments are part of the small intestine. So we can say the small intestine connects to the stomach. The duodenum connects to the stomach, that is the first part. And what happens in the small intestine? Digestion continues and absorption will begin. The nutrients that are now in their minimal, minimal units converted into the minimal units, they will be absorbed through the walls of the small intestine to the blood, to the circulation. In the small intestine, the walls of the small intestine contain smooth muscle and the smooth muscle contracts in two ways. One of them is called peristalsis. We talk about that peristalsis as a wave of contractions traveling all along the tube. But the other type of contraction is called segmentation. Segmentation is a type of contraction that mixes the food, in this case is the chyme, with the purpose to put it in contact with the mucosa for improving the absorption. It's a mixing contraction, it's a mixing movement that they promote. And it starts 
in the lower portion of the stomach as soon as the small intestine begins and continues pushing the food forward but not too much just a little bit and then mix it makes the food in that same place that's why it's called segmentation it occurs by segments my enteric plexus this group of nerve endings and the smooth muscle wall is going to promote these contractions called segmentations and in the graph we can see the difference between the peristalsis and segmentation peristalsis is a wave of contraction that travels and moving the food forward segmentation is a movement it's a contraction that happens and helps to mix the food back and forth back and forth now both peristalsis and segmentation happen at the same time and so the intestine at the same time makes the food move forward and helps to mix it for a better absorption so two patterns of contraction of the small intestinal wall peristalsis and segmentation in the small intestine inside the small intestine the mucosa will have foldings rugged ridges that we call plicae circularis plicae circularis we see here they are called circular folds and they help for turbulence in the flow of the chyme what for? Well, to encourage the digestion, the mixing and the more contact with the surface for a better absorption that is the purpose of the plicae circularis which are ridges of the mucosa and submucosa And when we open the uh, small intestinal segment, jejunum especially, we'll see lots of them. Lots of foldings of the mucosa like we see in that picture. And in a diagram we can see this. This is what we see when we open the small intestine. But if we make a diagram trying to understand how this happens, the circular folds or plicae circularis, they contain even submucosa. They are thicker, taller, compared with the villi. The villi, they contain basically just mucosa. But the circular folds contain submucosa. And they are taller and they are thicker. And we can see them with a naked eye when we open the small intestine segment. This is, uh, this is a duodenum, the duodenum, the first portion of the small intestine. And it has four parts. The first part of the duodenum is that little segment from the pylorus or pyloric sphincter until it makes a turn and turns vertical. The vertical portion is the descending part of the duodenum. So this will be the first part. There will be the number two descending part until the next curve. Then we have the horizontal part of the duodenum. And finally, the ascending part 
of the duodenum. These are the four segments, the four parts of the duodenum. And as we said before, the pancreatic juice, the bile, they drain into the second part, descending part of the duodenum. Something to note about the duodenum, small intestinal segment, but the duodenum contains in the submucosa, in the submucosa, specialized glands called Brunner's glands or duodenal glands. We see this photograph, we can identify the mucosa, then the submucosa, and in the submucosa we see these cells, these groups of cells arranged in glands. These are the duodenal glands or submucosal glands. That is present only, only in the duodenum. There's no other segment of the small intestine that has these glands in the submucosa, only the duodenum. So if you see a slide, a picture like this, and you identify the submucosa and you see glands there, that is duodenum, there is no doubt. That is one, the best sign to identify this segment of the small intestine. The other two parts, jejunum and ileum. Jejunum and ileum, those are the other two parts. We said jejunum about eight feet, ileum about 12 feet, in total 20 feet, 20, 21 feet, very long, very long, because we need a lot of surface for absorption of all the nutrients. Jejunum and ileum are seen, are shown here in different colors, because there are two different segments. The jejunum tends to be, tends to have a larger diameter, as you see here at the beginning, jejunum, and the ileum, it has a smaller diameter. But it's hard to define where the limit is. It's hard to define a line where you can say, this is jejunum and from here is ileum. There is a small transition that happens, a slow transition that occurs between the jejunum and ileum. The diameter gets smaller, the plicate circularis less number in the ileum. So there's a transition that occurs from the jejunum to the ileum. If you see it, you will see one only big segment, but you can differentiate the beginning of the jejunum from the end of the ileum. And the ileum, the ileum will finish when it connects to the large intestine. And this point is called ileocecal junction. Ileocecal junction. And in that ileocecal junction, there is a valve that is going to control the entrance of the food that has been digested in the small intestine and remains that are not digested, they will enter into the large intestine for elimination. So that's the beginning of the large intestine, the ileocecal junction. So the small intestine starts at the pyloric sphincter with the stomach and ends at the ileocecal junction. These are the differences between the jejunum and the ileum. As we were saying, the diameter, for instance, the jejunum is greater. The walls 
for the jejunum are thicker. There's usually more blood vessels in the jejunum because there's more absorption. The color, this is variable, but usually the jejunum tends to be more red. The ileum is a little bit paler than the jejunum. And fat in the mesentery is less fat in the jejunum than the ileum. These are some uh, differences that we can see between these two segments. But as I said, it's hard to distinguish. Quick look, you have to compare the beginning and the end to uh, know about the difference. Now, another thing that we note in the ileum, the last portion of the small intestine, is the presence of lymphatic nodules in the submucosa that we call Peyer's patches. Peyer's patches. All these lymphatic nodules are groups of lymphocytes, macrophages, and they are protecting us from invasion of microorganisms. There's always bacteria in the small intestine and large intestine. So actively, they are defending us against invasion by pathogens. That's one of the ways to recognize that we are seeing ileum. We see Peyer's patches, that's ileum. In general, the small intestine contains these foldings of the mucosa called villi. Villi is a plural term, singular is villus. And they are finger-like projections covered by simple columnar epithelium, which is a type of epithelium we find in the small intestine. Here we have the four layers, mucosa, submucosa, muscularis, and cirrhosis. And one thing to see, in the villi, in one villi, we will see blood capillaries and in green, a lacteal. A lacteal is lymphatic vessel. The nutrients, carbohydrates and proteins and amino acids, they are absorbed to the blood. The fats are absorbed to the lacteal, to the lymph. That's why there is a lymphatic vessel there in the villas of the small intestine. Now, macrovilli are microscopic. You cannot see them. You can see the villi when you open the small intestine. You see plicus circularis, you get a magnifying glass and you see the villi. But the microvilli are microscopic because they are folds of the apical surface of the endothelial cells, the simple columnar. And the purpose again is to increase the surface for absorption. If you add all that, the big plicae circularis, plus all the villas, plus even microscopic villi, then you have a tremendous surface for absorption. And that's actually that which helps a lot for getting all the nutrients. Types of cells, types of cells in the small intestine. We see the absorptive cells, which are the main type, that's a simple columnar epithelium, tall cells, with microvilli, with microvilli on the top. 
and if we add all the cells together you will see all the surface lined by this microvilli. Then in the middle of the villus we see goblet cells which are cells with a clear cytoplasm that produce mucus. The other type of cell is called enterendocrine cell which secretes secretin cholecystokinin or CCK. Remember we mentioned CCK, that's the one that makes the gallbladder contract. Well, the fat, when it gets to these cells, these cells will produce CCK and they will go to the blood, reaching the gallbladder and make the gallbladder contract. And paneth cells, which are immune system cells, they produce lysozymes, which is an antibacterial uh, product, and phagocytosis. They defend us from the injuries or the invaders. And it's not listed here, but in the depth of these foldings, we will find stem cells, intestinal stem cells, which are going to replace all these cells. Every five to seven days, this cell up here on the very top will be replaced because one week before, this cell was here down in the depth of this place. And along the days, it divides and divides and starts going up and replacing all the old cells. That cycle usually takes five, seven days. Intestinal cells are considered uh, a type of cell that we say is, uh, uh, has a quick replacement, fast, re fast replacement cells. In five, seven days, they are replaced. Yes. It's just replaced by the same cell? Yeah, this is happening. So all the old cells, they are shed and replaced by the daughter cells, the new cells. That's what happens when we have an intestinal infection. In intestinal infections, uh, the bacteria, what they do is infect the cells, even the viruses, and they actually destroy the cells of the intestine. Therefore, we are not able to absorb the nutrients, digestion is not completed, and we have diarrhea. But then, we usually recover in that number of days. An acute diarrhea, diarrhea, infectious diarrhea, will take or last from three to seven days. That's the average duration of all the process. And then after, the cells will be replaced with new cells and everything back to normal. So the intestines contain cells that we're going to call intestinal glands they're going to produce intestinal juice, which is alkaline, which is alkaline. Now this intestinal juice is going to mix with the pancreatic juice that comes from the pancreas, and they are going to continue the digestion of the food coming from the stomach. The trypsin, which is a hormone, I mean an enzyme from the pancreas, is secreted and inactive and it will be activated by the intestinal juice that contains enteropeptidase, that substance that activates the trips. Then most of the nutrients, carbohydrates, amino acids, fats, 
They are processed by the pancreatic enzymes, but they are not completely processed to the minimal expression. Some of them are, but some of them still, they need to be broken down to the minimal expression. For instance, the pancreatic amylase, the pancreatic amylase will degrade polysaccharides into disaccharides, to units. But the cells, intestinal cells, cannot absorb disaccharides. They only absorb monosaccharides. So these disaccharides have to be broken into single units in order to be absorbed. For that to happen, these intestinal cells, they have enzymes on the surface, on the surface of the, these intestinal cells. And this is called the brush border. Because we see it under the microscope like a dark line on top of the cells. It looks like a brush. And we call them brush border enzymes. So right before they are absorbed, for instance, the disaccharides, they have to be broken down into monosaccharides so they can be used, absorbed, and used uh, by the cells. This is what we call the brush border, the top, the apical portion of the cell with the microvilli. There is where we find enzymes. On the surface of the cells, we find enzymes that will break down most of the carbohydrates, disaccharides into monosaccharides, amino acids, dipeptides, tripeptides into single amino acids. And then absorption. 90% of all intestinal absorption will happen in the small intestine. That is the main function, absorption of nutrients. The nutrients will be absorbed to the blood or to the lymph. Proteins, amino acids, nucleic acids, monosaccharides will be absorbed to blood capillaries. By mechanisms of transport that we reviewed in 48, like facilitated diffusion, active transport, that's how the, uh, these amino acids and monosaccharides are transported inside the cell and then through the cell to the blood capillaries. Triglycerides or fats, they are absorbed, they are absorbed uh, to the lacteals or lymphatic vessels. But before, they had to be coated with proteins because these fats are not soluble in the water. They are not soluble in the plasma. So phospholipids, cholesterol, they had to be coated by, with proteins. And in that way, they are transported in the blood. That complex is called chylomicrons. When the fats are absorbed to the blood, they associate with proteins, and that's what we call chylomicrons. We find chylomicrons, which are like drops of fat, very small drops, traveling in the plasma. Where they go? Well, the final destination of all these nutrients has to be the liver. And here we summarize all these events, <coughs> part by part, let's say. Glucose, galactose, which are monosaccharides, they are absorbed, transported by secondary active transport coupled with solute. Fructose by facilitated diffusion. And you see now the monosaccharide in the other side of the intestinal cells ready to enter 
to a blood capillary blood vessel and then to the hepatic portal vein and then to the liver. Same with amino acids. Amino acids, they are transported by secondary active transport coupled with sodium and then diffuse to the blood. Dipeptides, tripeptides, they are also transported but they have to be broken down into amino acids. And that happens in the branch border enzymes, by the branch border enzymes. And here we have fats. In the lumen, we have the fatty acids. Well, these micelles, the micelles, they, they contain the triglycerides, the fats. And they are going to be broken down into their components, fatty acids and glycerol. They diffuse through the intestinal cell. And here, this intestinal cell is going to assemble these fatty acids and glycerol into chylomicrons. And these chylomicrons are going to the lacteals, lymphatic vessels. And from there, the lymphatic vessels, all of them drain to the thoracic duct and then to the jugular vein, subclavian vein, and from there to the heart and then circulate finally reaching the liberals. The liver and all organs, muscle, skin, adipose tissue. So that's how all this process of digestion and absorption happens in the small intestine. Questions, comments? Yes. The ampulla, the hepatopancreatic ampulla, where the bile and pancreatic juice drains, that opening in the duodenum, that is closed between meals. And it's called what again? The ampulla. The ampulla? Yeah. The ampulla of Vator. Yeah. The dipeptides and tripeptides need to be broken down into what? Into amino acids. They're broken down into amino acids. Those are the single units of the proteins. All right. Let's have a break.